Let's pray. Lord, we just sang to you, you are mighty to save. And Lord, you've saved a bunch of us. But we are aware of what you said, Lord Jesus. And you said that the gate is narrow. Few there be that find it. Lord, may we be so attractive in our following you that people will say, I want me some of that. Lord Jesus, it's not just even about being a witness, though. It's also about loving one another because the Holy Spirit lives within us. He is here right now. So, Lord, I pray that by your Spirit that you will open up this passage of Scripture to us. Um, There are some controversial parts in it. I pray that you will prepare us for this. Help us, Lord, to live it. And we're going to thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I remember it well. A number of years ago, when we were still at the, the building, American Legion Post. Remember Wendy Aschenbach? Remember the Aschenbach family? Yes. And Steve and, and their boys. And uh, Wendy, I believe, made a suggestion that we would take some time in our worship services to uh, just share with one another what's going on in our lives. And we called it open worship time. That we would share victory stories. You know, times when the Lord shows up even in our difficult moments. Even when the going is extremely hard. Even if our times are very unpleasant. To know that the Lord is with us is a victory story. Right, Amber? (laughs) And now we've been doing this ever since haven't we? And we've heard and we've told some incredible stories, haven't we, over the years? And this goes to the heart of what the writer to the Hebrews tells us as one of the main reasons why we are to come together in Hebrews 10, 24, and 25. And he says this, and let us consider consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. See, when we meet, we are to be authentic followers of Jesus. Sometimes we share our pain with one another in his presence. Sometimes we remind one another that God is with the Christian, that he will never leave us. He will never forsake us. But as always, you give him the praise and the worship that he will accept. And so today in our passage, 1 Corinthians 14, verses 26 to 40. So if you don't have it open yet, please open it up. Paul reminds us both of our vertical relationship, where we give worship to God and King, to our horizontal relationship as well, where we will stir up one another to love and good deeds. And so in these verses, Paul continues here, if you remember, if you've been following this, to talk about the Corinthians' misunderstanding of what corporate worship is in general, and the misuse of the Holy Spirit's manifestation of the gift of tongues in particular. Remember how throughout chapter 14, the Corinthians thought that the manifestation of tongues was an uber display of the Holy Spirit through them. It was a mystical mainline to God. How they coveted that experience. They so desired to be God's channels, His vessels, golden pipes through which God's revelation would flow. But Paul told it to them straight that the important thing was not the sound of tongues, whether it be of men or of angels or otherwise. What was most important was that the gathered people of God understood 
what the tongues speaker said. It was the understanding, not the display of the tongues that built up the church. And this required an interpreter. See, tongues build up the individual. Prophecy and interpretation of tongues does what? Builds up the church. See, didn't Paul say something about, you know, I'd rather speak five words in a, in a language that y'all can understand versus 10,000 words in a language that you couldn't? And so today, again, in our passage, 1 Corinthians 14, 26 to 40, we're going to finish up our mini-series on giving God worship that he will accept. See, in a word, it was the last word in this chapter. Let all things be done decently and in order. But how can that be pleasing to the Lord? Because it sounds so boring, doesn't it? Be done decently and in order. See, today it's a given that worship must be exciting, right? How many churches actually advertise this as a hook to get them to come in to their building to attend their services? See, we must get warmed up, they say, by excitement and as a minimum, raise our hands and shout loudly, accompanied by lights and fog machines and all the pyrotechnics, right? Indeed, how many in the church today, though, only see praise and worship as music that's performed before the speaker comes up and gives his message, usually in the form of a TED Talk. But now, I'll be the first to say that I'm not exactly the most expressive person on the planet, okay? I'm kind of reserved. I don't know if you know that about me. (laughs) Now, even when I followed my favorite NFL team, the Broncos, and even when they won back-to-back Super Bowls, yeah, it was cool. I wasn't, you know, I wasn't jumping up and down. You know, I wasn't shouting and raising my hands and all that kind of stuff. It was, I was happy. It's great because, you know, when any, you know, sports team wins back-to-back championships, that's something to be admired, right? But now, my emotions didn't show a whole lot then. But that doesn't mean I don't have emotions. But in corporate worship especially, I'm not saying that we cannot raise our hands. I'm not saying that we can't shout. I'm not saying that we can't get excited, because we can. So I remember when I was a pastor in, in, in South Korea, in chaplaincy, and I was pastor of the, the gospel choir or the, or the gospel service. You know, talk about excited. They were totally excited. The OMAS choir led us in singing, and it was electric. Now, these guys, they loved the Lord with all their hearts, and they would, in order to prepare for Sunday, they would fast and pray for their rehearsals. And when they had, they had the rehearsals, they had church. They really did. It was amazing. It was really cool. And so it, it was electric. Talk about, you know, excitement. Talk about raising hands. Talk about shouting. It was wonderful. But what I'm driving at here is that what we mistake for worship that God accepts See, it's not only about a deeply moving experience in a worship service. Though if we have a relationship with Christ Jesus as our Savior and Lord, it is the most profound of all experiences. Would you agree? It's not only about powerful emotions in a worship service, though the Lord tells us to love Him with all of our hearts, which is where our emotions pour forth. But worship that God accepts, and I hope that you caught this throughout our series, is simply this profoundly and simply loving him as God defines love. It is giving him honor as God defines honor. 
See, worship that God accepts is not gauged by how we feel at the conclusion of our time together. Worship that God accepts does not even ask, what did I get out of my time today with the Lord? And worship that God accepts asks this question, did God get all of me today? That's the question. And even more basic, did I live my life during the week in such a way that my appearing before God on Sunday mornings does not reflect hypocrisy? In other words, worship that the Lord accepts means that there is little difference in the way that I appear on Sunday mornings than the way I live on Tuesday nights when I'm doing something online. Or Friday at lunchtime, meeting with my friends and an off-color joke is told. Or when an opportunity arises for me to give a testimony that I'm a follower of Christ. So remember what God said to his own people. In Isaiah chapter 1. And so I want you to turn with me there. Isaiah chapter 1, verses 14 to 18. You need to see this. See, oftentimes we think that that God is just all kind and all loving and all accepting of everything that we do. And some even think, I'm, I'm sure, that would say, you know, God is so pleased just to have me worship there that any old worship activity will do. But that's not the case with our God. Isaiah chapter 1, verses 14 to 18. Listen and take in these words, what God says about his people. Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. For God to say he hates something, that's a pretty big deal. They have become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. That's the indictment on his people. Now he says, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil from, of your deeds from before my eyes, cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. These are God's people, he said this to These were people that God was in a covenant relationship with. He rejected their worship because the way they lived outside of their worship gatherings bore little to no correlation to their self-proclaimed religious life. And so what does God want from his people? Simply this, an authentic life, a life that reflects vigorous godliness, the beauty of holiness, 24-7, 365, not merely one to two hours out of the 168 hours a week that the Lord loans to us. See, God wants from us as Grace United on Sunday mornings, open worship and ordered worship. Open worship where we give the Lord our undivided attention, where He is front and center. And ordered worship where we all understand that we're under the authority of, and control of His Holy Spirit and of His Word. 
And so today in this message, I want to walk us through these verses almost like a, a running commentary. Because there is a point that Paul is making here in this passage, and I want to make sure that we don't, we don't miss it. So it all kind of hangs together here. For in this passage, we're going to talk about several different kinds of things, like, for example, limitations on how, pe- how many people should actually speak during the worship service, or even whether or not women should speak in the corporate worship service. Now, before I jump in here, I will say this, that when I share with Kitty this week about what I was learning about this passage, <laughs> she just looked at me and she said, you know what, Glenn, you go where angels fear to tread. <laughs> well, perhaps, but I must, I must. It's the next thing on the list. I have to deal with it. I can't avoid it. But my prayer throughout has been that I would be accurate with the text and that I will communicate it in such a way that it makes sense and it's applicable to us in the 21st century. And so pray for me, pray for yourselves, pray for those around you that God will be able to help us understand and to apply these verses as we walk through them. So let's begin with verse 26. What then, brothers, sisters, when you come together, each one of you has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or interpretation. Let all things be done to build up. Now, is that not a form of open worship right there? Everybody has something. Now, Paul reminds the Corinthian believers and reminds us too, everybody indeed does have something if we know Christ as their Lord and Savior. Every person has received salvation, and we know what that means. We've repented of our sin, and we've trusted Christ as our Savior. We've got something to contribute to one another, to build one another up. But again, what is the gospel? What is it that Jesus tells us that we are to believe and repent of our sins in order to gain this? The gospel is simply this. Our God reigns. He reigns. He's king. He's king of the universe. And it's a no-brainer to say that there is only room in the universe for only one all-knowing, all-powerful, all-everywhere-at-once God, right? Would you agree with that? There's only enough room for one. And I'm reminded in Psalm 24, 1, that the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. See, all of what we see and all of what we even don't see, it's His. And God will be glorified. He has been and He is glorified in everything of His creation. God sent Christ to take care of our sin problem because we, as human beings, really messed it up. Would you agree? See, God sent Christ to die for us because that's how heinous sin is to him. Christ, the perfect man, the God-man, hung on the cross to take away our sin. Remember how he said, it's finished, paid in full. All of our sins are paid in full. And no one now has to carry around their burden of sin if they don't want it. And like Pilgrim at Pilgrim's Progress, the moment that we turn from our sin and embrace the cross of Christ, the sin rolls off our back like a big burden. It's gone. And now we are free to serve the King. Isn't that wonderful news? And all of us who share in our common salvation, we are to build one another up. We can do this. We're strengthening our faith 
knowing that the Lord is alive and well in here and out there as well. So let's take advantage of the time that we're together when we are together to do these sorts of things, to build up one another. Now, verses 27 and 28. If anyone speaks in a tongue, let there be only two or most three and each in turn and let someone interpret. But if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. Again, what is this thing about when it comes to tongues? Why is Paul doing this? What is it all about? See, the Corinthians were seeking a mystical experience, primarily so they can probably show off that they were having a mystical experience. But Paul says, in essence, hey, tongue speakers, y'all only get two or three passes at this, okay? And by the way, let everybody in on your experience. Why doesn't somebody who have the gift of interpretation be able to share with everybody what's happening with you? And if an interpreter does not show up, then guess what? Be quiet. We can say it more more forcefully, but yes, be quiet. See, we will have no showing off of spiritual prowess if people can't be built up. That's Paul's point here. Now, we can crystallize Paul's word this way. No interpreter, no tongues. Simple as that. Once again, the point is that everybody gets encouraged. They get strengthened in the discipleship of the Lord. But tongues without an interpretation only builds up one person. And who is that? It's the speaker. That's it. And by way of application, whenever something is said in the corporate worship service, especially open worship time, it's time to give God the glory. It's not a time for a tale of woe with no hope. Let us in on where you believe God is working in your situation, in your story. Now, we heard today about Canon Hinnant, that little boy who was shot at point-blank range. Horrendous, horrendous story. Can you imagine the grief of this family? But what if the Hinnant family were to come here to us? What would we do? What kind of ministry would we have in their lives? Tears, compassion, arms, as much as we can muster. We want to help them to understand the compassion of the Lord. But as horrendous as this is, what have we come to do primarily? Worship the King. We will minister and we minister to one another, but we come here primarily to worship the king. And that's where the priority needs to be. But lest we think that there are only limits to those who are speaking in tongues, let's move on. Verses 29 to 33. Let two or three prophets speak, and let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all be encouraged. And the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. For God is not a a God of confusion, but of peace. So let's keep in mind two things here. First, notice love in action, as Paul just talked about in the previous chapter, chapter 13. He said, love is not rude. It waits for others. And especially in this case, notice how Paul put it. One or two prophets speak. 
and then let others weigh what's being said. Prophets prophesy one by one. Again, words prompted by God's Holy Spirit, spoken through God's servants to God's people, need to be heard. That's why you don't speak over one another, Paul is saying. There is control here. Like tongue speakers, there is order. Words matter. And how much more important are they when spoken by God's Spirit through God's people? And again, to minister to God's people. And second, with these vocal gifts of tongues and prophecy, interpretation, and revelation, let's remember that this was a very special time back then. See, all of Scripture had not been written by then. It was still being written, wasn't it? This was a special time, a transition. Some of these words were indeed new revelation from God. They needed to be heard by God's people. And obviously, not every word of revelation was written down, was it? Not there. But that's okay. Remember one of our ground rules for Scripture study. The Bible was not written to us, was it? It was written for us. It was written for us. And though we don't have every last revelatory utterance written down, what we have is what the Lord wants us to have for a reason. Why did God do this? Why did God give us the Scripture? Among other things, Paul tells us this in Romans 15, 4. He says, for whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. But hope in and of itself is not the end point, though. We don't have hope just to have hope. There's a destination. We're going somewhere with this hope. And what is that destination? Paul says it in Romans 15, 5 and 6. And he says, May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live, get this, in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that what? Together you may with what? One voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. What is the hope for? Why do we share this hope? In a word, unity. Once again, the Christian life does not just consist of just Jesus and me or just Jesus and you. How we need to come together to encourage one another, that we need to help one another along the path of life so we can all make it to what Paul had said, to attain, as he said, the resurrection from the dead. And we would call that the resurrection of life. See, all of us are going to go there, right? All of us, none of us are going to get out of this life alive. We're either going to go to the resurrection of life or the resurrection of damnation, one or the other. Where are you going? But do you see this, though? Regardless of whether it is tongues with its interpretation or prophecy or revelation, limits are placed on these utterances. And even today. Let's say that, that these kinds of things were going to happen here today. We can also weigh the things that are being said. How can we do this? With the completed word of God that we have in our midst. The truth is, we have a responsibility to one another, to the body, to lovingly, humbly, but strongly correct things that are not in accordance with the plain teaching. Of God's Word. Now, there's all kinds of things that have room for interpretation. Would you agree with that? But there are some things that are plain as day in Scripture, and we need to call out one another when it comes to these things, if they're in error. 
For example, if during an open worship time, someone says, hey, church, I had a vision last night. Jesus appeared to me, and he gave me a message. And the message is, you know what? Islam is right after all. And I'm only a prophet of Allah, and you know, I'm not really the son of God. And I want to tell you, because of my experience, I believe that now, and I want to pass this truth on to you. Do we sit there and just listen to this? We're to call it out. Why? Because that's the plain teaching of truth, plain teaching of Scripture. We are to say, no, you are wrong. And how often are we even allowed to say you're wrong in our culture? We must do this. We must say, it's not accordance with the Scripture, you're wrong. But now, on the other hand, there's all kinds of other things that we can talk about, as I call it, intramurally, right? For example, when is the rapture going to happen? <laughs> well, pre-trib, mid-trib, pre-wrath, post, or maybe not at all. Some say that. It's all, all of us have different ideas about these things, and all of us can have these scriptures to back things up. And we can share together these things, and I can still remain, you know, a Christian with you, you can still remain a Christian with me, regardless of our views on the rapture. But we need to discuss these things, even if we disagree, without being disagreeable. Am I right? <laughs> so now let's move on to verses 34 and 35. The women <clears throat> should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there is anything desired to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. I'll just let that settle there for a second. It says it right there. God's inspired word says these things. It says a woman is not to speak in church. It says, if a woman wants to learn anything, they're to ask their husbands at home. Well, what if you're a single woman? (laughs) It is shameful for a woman to speak in church. So now, what do we do with this inspired scripture? (laughs) (laughs) Well, the short answer is, The short answer is things aren't as they appear, okay? (laughs) First of all, remember what Paul said at the beginning of our mini-series, 1 Corinthians 11, verse 5. It's on the screen. Every wife or woman who prays or prophesies, this is in the context of the corporate worship service, okay? Now, is Paul contradicting himself? between chapter 11 and chapter 14? Well, in the famous words of Vizzini, when he and Wesley were having a battle of wets, he says, not remotely. There is no contradiction here. So let me explain. But keep in mind, and I heard the word context, context is king, all right? Just as we saw in chapter 11, women may speak in church. They may pray. They may even prophesy. They may speak in tongues. But here in chapter 14, 
women are to be silent in the areas of the interpretation of tongues and in the authoritative weighing in of prophecy or new revelation. That's where they're to be silent. But why is that? There are two very powerful reasons why. Why are they not allowed to do this? First, Paul here tries to minimize strife in the home. Remember what we talked about a a number of times regarding the honor and shame culture that they lived in. And even more important, even now, right, you go on Facebook and and the, the social media, that's becoming more and more shame culture, right? But back then, they were immersed in it. They were steeped in it. And the wife would do anything to avoid dishonoring her husband. And this, in part, is what Paul referred to in verse 34, that she is to be in submission, as in submission to her husband. You've got these very legalistic churches that basically say, women, you're to be in submission to the pastor. Wrong answer. That's not what it's saying here. So now let's picture this. A woman's husband is speaking in tongues or prophesying or giving a new revelation. Okay, picture that. For this man's wife to publicly address her husband in an authoritative manner would be to do what? To dishonor him. It was just not done. Okay, that that went completely against everything of their cultural norms. And so what Paul was doing, it served to protect the husband so that she would not bring shame upon herself. And second... Now, this may, this may ruffle some feathers of other people. The Lord placed the man, not the woman, in charge of the church to be the leader, to be the shepherd. This is not because a woman is incapable of leadership. We all know this. But this is the role the man is to play. God said this. And pronouncing an authoritative tongue's interpretation or weighing in of a prophecy or revelation was not because a woman to do it because it could not be understood but it was maybe to be misunderstood that the woman, it might appear that the woman was in charge, a woman was in the leadership. Again, she may speak in tongues. She may prophesy. She may be do everything except be viewed as someone who is in authority in the church. Now, there's more we could say, a whole lot more we could say, but we need to go on, okay? Verses 36 to 38. Or was it from you that the word of God came? Or are you the only one it has reached? If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I'm writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. In short, what is Paul saying here? He's saying that a sure sign that the Holy Spirit is moving in and among certain individuals, such as those who are interpreting tongues, or those who are weighing in on authoritative prophecy, or those kinds of things. A sure sign that person is spiritual is that he also recognizes that what Paul was writing was a command of the Lord. That was scripture. It was what it was it was authoritative. See, Paul told them in no uncertain terms that what he gave them was the word of the Lord. It was a command of God. In other words, could it be that Paul was well aware? that the letter that we call 1 Corinthians, that he realized it was inspired Scripture. Once again, we need to remember 
that this is a time of great transition. Scripture was still being written back then. And the Apostle Peter, for example, he recognized that Paul's writings were Scripture. In fact, in, second, in Peter's second letter, he encouraged his readers to wait patiently for the Lord's return and realize that the delay in the Lord's return, the longer he delayed, it means more time for the lost to give their heart to Jesus. And then Peter goes on, and he acknowledges something here that we all know if we've been Christians for a while, that sometimes Paul's writings are difficult to understand. Would you agree with that? So let's pick up Peter's words in 2 Peter 3.16. Again, turn with me there if you would. We need to see this in the text, in our Bibles, in this. So 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 16. Again, Peter's talking about the return of the Lord and got to be ready and got to live your life, you know, in preparation for him. As he, Paul, does in all his letters when he speaks of them in these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and the unstable twist to their own destruction. Finish this part as they do the other scriptures or the rest of the scriptures. So how did Peter refer to Paul's writings? Scripture, on par with everything else that was considered inspired Scripture. And the bottom line is that it was possible among the Corinthians to recognize the ring of truth in the writings of the apostle. And we can too as we avail ourselves to the Holy Spirit. Are you convinced that this is God's word? Are you convinced? Sometimes we have our doubts, don't we? And let's be honest here. So before we encounter our intake of Scripture, as we read it or hear it, we can pray this along with the psalmist when he said, open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things in your Torah, in your teaching, in your law. Psalm 119, all the way back in the Old Testament. Open my eyes, I may behold wondrous things. I pray that every day when I pray or when I, when I read Scripture. And so now back to 1 Corinthians 14. So what was Paul doing here? He was saying the red flag for the believers in Corinth was that if someone fancied himself to be spiritual, to be able to speak in tongues or to be able to prophesy or all those kinds of things, and he did not recognize or he downplayed it or he denied that what Paul wrote was not from the Holy Spirit, then that person was to be disavowed. That person was not to be listened to by anybody. In other words, the Holy Spirit or the authority lies in Holy Scripture. And in this case, recognizes God's word as coming from the pen of the Apostle Paul. The Holy Spirit inspired Paul to write down. And we have it here too. It's wonderful, isn't it? Some try to despise Paul's writings even in the church in the first century. And how much more is that happening today? A lot, a whole lot. There are many who would dare to place their experience above the Word of God and even twist it. The founder of a well-known religious cult wrote a book. He called it Another Testament of Jesus Christ. In this book, he issued a testimony and a challenge. Here was his testimony. I told the brethren that this was the most correct of any book on earth and the keystone of our religion, 
and a man would get nearer to God by abiding by its precepts than by any other book. Another testament of Jesus Christ. That's what his testimony was as he wrote that. And here was this man's challenge. We invite all men everywhere to read this book. I say no, but that's what he said. To ponder in their hearts the message it contains, and then to ask God, the eternal Father, in the name of Christ, if the book is true. Those who pursue this course and ask in in faith will gain a testimony of its truth and divinity by the power of the Holy Ghost. Those who gain this divine witness from the Holy Spirit will also come to know by the same power that Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world, that Joseph Smith is his revelator and prophet in these last days, and that the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is the Lord's kingdom once again established on the earth, preparatory for the second coming of the Messiah. That's in the Book of Mormon. By Joseph Smith's own assertion, the Book of Mormon is more accurate than the Bible, and that a man would get nearer to God by abiding by its precepts than by any other book, including the Holy Scripture. Now, again, there's much more that needs to be said. We can go all day on this. But let me implore you, believe God's book, not a false book that claims to be God's book. There's a lot out there. Believe God's book. And finally, let's look at verses 39 to 40. So my brothers, sisters, earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues, but all things should be done decently and in order. So now we've come full circle today's message. All things in the corporate worship are to be done properly and in order. Earnestly desire to prophesy because clear messages of divine truth build people up. Do not forbid speaking in tongues. It is a bona fide spiritual gift. And don't forget to interpret while you're at it. So open worship, ordered worship, the worship we offer the Lord in here, if offered right, will help us to offer the Lord an ordered life of clean hands and a pure heart during the week. We will pursue love for one another, for agape love is the goal, is what Christian life is all about, true? We are saved by the Lamb of God who is worthy to be praised. And I can't think of a better way to end our time of corporate worship than to be reminded of what John saw when he heard the command in Revelation, come up here. We're going to see the, song, the words to the Revelation song in a moment on the screen. We're going to hear the music, the sound system. Let's not allow this opportunity to participate in this song, Pass Us By. This song is not designed to be passively listened to. We need to participate in it. As we sing together, imagine in your mind's eye what it must be like and what it's going to be like when we actually are in the very throne room of God. Let's allow the participation in this song to be our last for the day, the last thing that we're doing for the day. I'm going to pray for the offering. We'll go ahead and have the, and we'll pass around the basket. And then after we do that, after our giving, then we will participate in Revelation song. Let us pray. 
Lord, thank you for being the God that you are. You are all-powerful. You're all-knowing. You're everywhere at once. Lord, you don't have to learn anything because you know it all. You don't have to go anywhere because you're already there. You don't have to, to, to exert any exertion at all because you're all-powerful. And you love us. And you're patient with us. And you're kind to us. That and so much more. Thank you once again, Father, for the Lord Jesus, who now is at your right hand, Father, interceding for us. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for interceding for us as well with groanings too deep for words. Lord, we are, we are pitiful. We really are pitiful. We're made in your image, Lord, but we've fallen. And Lord, your work in our lives is to establish us to back to where we ought to be. And Lord, you are doing just that. And one day, Lord, we will be just like we need to be because of your work. I thank you, Lord, for Grace United. I thank you, Lord, for your word today. And I pray, Father, that as we have our giving now, that you will help us to give with a heart that's truly overflowing and full of gratitude for what you've done for us. And I pray, Lord, also, as we sing our last song, that you will help us to experience maybe a fresh glimpse of heaven because of what you wrote in your word, Lord, by your spirit. So thank you, Lord, for this time. Thank you, Lord, for our gathering together. Help us, Lord, to live the way that we need to live as we leave here with clean hands, pure heart, giving love to others, even loving our enemies, and especially loving our brothers and sisters. We're gonna thank you for these things in Jesus' name.